0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today is our December edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. This month, we are joined by our dear friend, Dr. Sarah Rinfrey, professor of public policy and administration and acting dean of the Blewett School of Law. Bryce, Sarah, how are you today? We're good. Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to run into the fire a little bit today and try not to cancel ourselves. We decided it was time to talk about culture wars. What are they? Why do they suck up so much oxygen? And what are the consequences? So I suppose a good place to start is by defining a culture war. Bryce, do you wanna take a stab at that? Sure, I mean, I just Googled it. Uh, <laughs> that's what we do for all these episodes, yeah, don't I we? Mean,
1: it says uh, something about a conflict over beliefs, values, ideals, or philosophies, which sounds to me like everything. So yeah. I'm not sure if like it means that's a, a good definition. I think the way it tends to be referred to is stuff about like race, Immigration, abortion, that kind of stuff, and mm. not taxes and redistribution.
0: Sarah, what's a culture war mean to you?
2: You know, I think it depends on who you ask, right? Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about if I asked my grandfather this in rural Ohio, he'd be like, What are you talking about? Isn't this made up? But, mm. you know, I was, as a trained political scientist, you know, I think about Pat Buchanan when he was running for president. And so um, using that as one of his talking points or sound bites, you know, a struggle for the soul of America you know, and putting that framing on a culture war. But I also think it goes back to kind of schisms in American culture. And I think it's maybe overplayed by the media. And what that means is there really this us versus them. But I think it goes all the way back to the Civil War, you know, and us kind of trying to symbolize what the United States of America is about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of both of you are referring to issues that kind of define what the country is and what it isn't. Bryce, do you think we're at a point where things are getting better, things are getting worse? It certainly feels like the discourse is getting worse. But I don't know. I mean, Sarah referenced, you know, Pat Buchanan and and Civil War and like these these sort of dialogues about our values and what they mean have been going on since the country was founded. But are we at a uniquely bad time? I don't know if it's uniquely bad. Certainly it's bad for recent history. In
1: 1993 – You know, I wrote my junior year term paper in AP U.S. history about how the parties had really converged around the median voter and there wasn't a whole lot of distinction amongst them. And then, of course, a year later, 1994 comes. And that's really a turning point in terms of polarization, in terms of, you know, what we've seen over our political lifetimes. Right. That's also the year that I become a voter is 1994. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of ratcheted up. And now it's different stuff all the time. But certainly we know that effective polarization is up. It used to be that I liked my party and I was pretty neutral on the other party. And now I'm, I like my party the same as I used to, but I hate the other party. Okay. Right. That's what we call, you know, it's called effective polarization. That has definitely risen, you know, at least, you know, relative to modern history. Now we don't have these kind of time series that go back to the civil war or, you know, whatever, you know, reconstruction, all these other periods of time, but uh, so, you know, kind of. Of the kind of post-war World War II history, you know, yeah, things today are different than they've been. And, you know, it's – there's certainly more contention. And, you know, I think that's part of why people would rather yell at people than engage with them. Public meetings have always been filled with, you know, interesting people. But it does seem like there's kind of just more – you know, and some of this is also COVID-related, right? Like, oh, yeah. you know, people
0: are pretty frayed from COVID. You know, we just opened up a whole new front in the culture war. Several fronts, it would seem. Right. And and I mean we'll we'll circle back to this, but you, you, at one level you would look at COVID as a way to sort of you know, we talk we're gonna talk about identity salience in this conversation and, and a challenge to a populace like COVID could be an opportunity to make salient the American identity and bring people together and there's the like, human identity. Yeah, and there there seemed like there was a, a glimmering moment for that to maybe happen and then uh yeah, it didn't go that way. So Sarah, you study bureaucracy, you study the policymaking process, you're in touch with people that are making the sausage on a daily basis. What are some of the people you know in government saying about how hard it is to do the job?
2: These are the students that I teach, right? I mean, I would say what, 90% of our MPA students are working in the public sector right now. But you know, I am I always track the Pew Research, like what is the level of trust in government? And so it started in the 1960s until today they have a daily tracker. And so I just checked this morning and our trust in government institutions is at 24%. That's not good. Versus like 74% in the 1960s. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about is government, which government, elected or non-elected. And so I'm okay. focusing on the non-elected. But think about what the non-elected are grappling with, a pandemic, school shootings, higher education, discrimination. I mean, there's all these variety of factors. And I think we want that instant gratification on the American public side. But when you're in where the rubber meets the road, on the ground, trying to provide solutions within the bureaucracy, I think folks are really getting beat up. You know, I have a student that she works for a public health organization and, you know her life is being threatened and her family, other students that are just trying to figure out daycare, you know, like the rest of us, right? Like trying to figure out daycare and how do you manage the COVID restrictions, but then also keeping your family safe. And so you're reconciling like family dynamics, maybe school dynamics, but then also pressure to get your job right. Because, you know, on the front lines of the bureaucracy, you're implementing public policy, you're affecting people's daily lives And it's really tough. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, we were talking about this in class on Tuesday night about what our work really matters. And like, we are truly committed to the public sector, public service, but people can only handle as much as they, you know, they that's been thrown at them. And I think a lot of us are just really holding on right now.
0: And one of the things that occurs to me is like, the three of us kind of came up around the same time. We're about the same age. And I remember... And maybe it's just because, like, Ronald Reagan was the first real sort of politician that I kind of was old enough to understand or pay attention to a little bit. And it just seemed like at that moment it was, you know, capitalism versus communism and, you know, taxes were such a salient issue. And, Bryce, you you clued us into some research that shows that issues of redistribution are are maybe not the issues that divide us as much as they used to. It's these kind of cultural issues that have, have taken much more salience in recent years. Yeah. So a new paper by these three Italian
1: guys in, in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, they start with just these, these facts, right? Which is just, look, where they are going to look at these surveys that we've done of the American electorate over time. And you'll, you know, we'll look at, you know, some questions, which we're kind of, we're going to call redistribution, but it's kind of economic stuff. And then we're going to look at some questions that are a combination of, you know, race and abortion and immigration. So we'll call that cultural stuff. And, you know, the salience and the variance around these things, you know, have changed over the course of just the 21st century. Redistribution has fallen in terms of how much it divides people and, you know, how much it's, you know, really – what's really going on
0: with it. Let's just be clear there. You're not saying that the level of redistribution in the government but – you're saying the issue of redistribution. Yeah,
1: the salient – you know, how much people are kind of divided over this, uh, concerned about it or, you know, how much it's, you know, kind of – Separating people, mm-hmm. right? The things that separate people have been increasingly become this quote, culture war, yeah, right. And interestingly, people have started realigning their, you know, they've kind of subsumed their class identity, you know, because usually that's how we thought about it, right? Was you have a class identity and you have this kind of political identity sure. or whatever, progressive, conservative, right? And depending on which is more salient, oh, I oh, right now I'm really concerned about class stuff. Uh, we got to do more redistribution, right, or less redistribution, depending on which side of the class where you're on. And then – and now it's like, well, no. I mean, what we've seen is this kind of – people have – particularly on the right have subsumed class to culture and, in fact, realigned their position on redistribution so that it more aligns with their cultural position in their politics. Right. It's an interesting question about how does this happen – And why does it happen? And also, it's worth noting that this isn't necessarily permanent, right? Like, these things have fluctuated over time to the extent that we have data. Sometimes class becomes the more salient thing, and sometimes culture does. We're just living in a moment where it's become particularly salient in ways which are kind of interesting, to be honest. So the model that they propose to explain this is we all have lots of identities, I've got my family identity, I've got my community identity, my state identity, my national identity, my racial identity, my university identity, you know, my gender identity. Well, all of these things, these are all, they all compete within us at the same time. Yep. But at different points in time, certain ones are more salient. And when they are more salient, I behave more in line with that group, right? So I kind of move towards the stereotypical member of that group. So in politics, you know, their simple model is I've got class or I've got culture. And depending on what is the salient issue in the electorate at the time of the election, that's where people swing. And so essentially it's instead of having kind of core beliefs that then drive my voting preferences, right? I have a bunch of core beliefs, but they're actually conflicting. And, you know, if you try to unpack your own beliefs, you'll kind of you know, you pull on the thread and it kind of all becomes mush. But it's also because I have these all these different competing identity groups that I'm trying to belong to. And so, you know, there's been real shocks that have changed the, the salience of cultural issues. 9-11, racial protests, you know, immigration surges, those are all real shocks to the salience of cultural issues, as would be the overturning of Roe v. Wade if it ever happened, right? Mm-hmm. All of those things drive salience of, of cultural issues. However, they find this very interesting thing that's happened, not just in the United States, but actually, you know, one of the things that's kind of been interesting about seeing these patterns, not ju- they're not just American patterns always. They're kind of happening in a variety of countries. You know, this educational polarization, you know, where, you know, more affluent, college educated people are becoming more politically homogenous. And, you know, they argue that, well, this is because the economic shocks that we went through, you know, pre-COVID. Their globalization-induced or their skill bias technological change, they favored college-educated people who, who lots of people view as you know their urban professional. That's who won, right? Right. So if I'm a non-urban professional, right, I'm seeing them winning economically, and it reinforces my cultural identity, not my economic identity. And then that's all. This all on the demand side, right? And then we have at the same time. A bunch of technological changes that make the supply side the people who are supplying cultural war messages and hatred of other people and us versus them it's cable news and the internet they get layered right on top of it and so now we've got this you know soup of like it's really easy for me to be triggered have my identity salience move towards culture war to then go online And find oh, this is what the stereotypical member of my group is doing. I should behave like that. And you're gonna find all kinds of people that agree with you. And and I can find all the people. and, And I get I get rewarded with attention as long as I toe the line of my group. And you know, and and we've gotten really good at manipulating people around those elections to try and raise the salience
0: of these cultural identity stuff in order to try and win elections. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward and Sarah Renfray after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success.
1: Hey, this is Ryan Tutel of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening
0: to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with economist Bryce Ward and political scientist Sarah Rinfrey about culture wars. You mentioned when an identity is made salient, it, it sort of activates stereotypes of the in-group. It also activates stereotypes of the out-group. And Sarah, one thing that uh, occurs to me in that line of thinking is the students that you work with and, and sort of launch into public service careers – they take on that identity and their identity is largely based on trying to do a job that solves people's problems. Yet the work that they're doing from the outside, from the people yelling and screaming at each other is more about things like tyranny and all these other sort of hot cultural terminology. Like, people graduating your program are not thinking, I'm going to solve bathrooms for people. Whereas on the outside, it's like, bathrooms are a huge issue, and who gets to go in what bathroom, and all the gender issues around that. So like, how do those kind of forces collide when you're talking about people trying to make good policy and improve people's lives, but also, there's all this noise around them about stuff that they're not really working on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is, folks are used to a certain way of life, right? And so, I think that we're seeing, you know, we just watched a documentary on AI technology and how, like, truck fleets are going to go away um, in the future, right? You can now drive a truck without a person in it, and it's going to deliver you your goods and services. And so thinking about how we're changing rapidly with technology like Bryce was talking about, but I think, like... Again, like you said, our students are really excited to serve the public, but then you're thrown into this fray. I mean, we go back to some of the original work in public administration, where it's like you're separating politics and administration. Like that's not happening; it doesn't happen, right? But how do you navigate that, and how do you have the skills to do so? And those are some of the things that we're working on. But I think also power is at play here, right? And so we live in a democracy. So how does a bureaucracy function in, in a democracy? And I think our hierarchical structures were were struggling, right, where you have maybe command from the top and providing orders, you know, um, to folks at the bottom, right, and and working on that communication, that two-way communication. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, we talk a lot about representative bureaucracy and the bureaucracy, you know, federal, state, local agencies are some of the most representative places, and they're trying to produce policy, you know, based upon vague congressional legislation. But But it's also the folks that are in control of our elected offices Mm -hmm. still represent a large segment of our population that doesn't represent the nation as a whole. And so how do you grapple with that? And I think that's another piece of this so-called culture war is that once you have power, right, you want to maintain that power. And so we see this playing out in our own state with how we're drawing the congressional seat And then using power, and and one of the things that I always remember is, like, once you have power, you want to stay in power. And is culture war just a way to keep us distracted so those individuals stay in power?
0: Yeah, that provides politicians with just tremendous fuel. An elected official can just sprinkle out a cultural issue as, as catnip and... Yeah, you know, that's much easier to do to get him or herself onto Fox News or onto MSNBC or whatever to talk about some distraction than it is to actually make policy. And it would seem like there's rewards to doing that that are probably uh, greater than it is to actually collaborate and, and to solve problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the problem, right? Is you know, so the problem with us versus them, which is the end point of you know culture war, it breaks down rationality right instead of me sitting here and saying let me evaluate this issue that is being debated and assess you know what's good for me or good for the community or what you know whatever frame i want to use now it's oh what's the tribe saying and how is it being manipulated and by whom and for what purposes right we've seen this right i mean this is covid vaccines i mean it is a tragedy what has happened in terms of I mean, what are you, I think you're 16 times more likely to have died from COVID since vaccinations happened if you're unvaccinated. 36 times more likely to have been hospitalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an enormous loss of human life. And yes, there are some people who can't take vaccines or have, you know, actual, maybe real-based fears, but a lot of this is it's reasoning from antagonism.
0: Define that term.
1: Basically says, look, as long as the, the other side likes it, it must be bad because they are bad. And now... I'm just going to go online and somebody will provide me what some reason likely made up for why it's bad. And But because I'm so wrapped up in this identity of they're the bad people, we're the good people, you'll start believing lots of objectively crazy things like these people that keep showing up in Dallas waiting for JFK Jr. to show up. It's sad. And, you know, and this is a plague on our society. That we have to somehow get ourselves out of because it is – it's making it much harder for, you know, simple bureaucrats who are just trying to, like, solve a problem. There are some real hard choices that have to be made with COVID. But the vitriol and hatred and lawsuits and all the stuff that goes with volunteering to be on the school board, like, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Or taking – what is likely a relatively low paid public service job relative to what that same person could be making in the private sector. We have to have standards and norms in society that make it so that that kind of stuff is not okay. Even when we're talking about important issues. And this is what culture war has done to us is it's, it's okay. As long as I'm in my tribe, I can make jokes about shooting school superintendents. That's funny or shoot or cutting off the members of Congress's heads or whatever. I mean, this is, quote, okay because it's funny,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: It's not okay. And this is what culture war has done to us because it didn't it didn't used to be like this, right? You can go back and look at political cartoons from, from the 60s when we had 70% trust in the government, right? We always are going to fight about stuff. But what's happened with culture war is we've gotten marinated in these identities and it's breaking our brains and breaking the process of keeping society functioning and moving forward.
2: When well, we've stopped listening, we don't listen to each other anymore. We don't have conversations. It's just what animates our passions.
0: And it occurs to me that I often think about this when thinking about those stories is is part of this decree, you know, this sort of increase in factionalization and vitriol may be attributable to some of the greater diversity in our governing institutions? I mean, could this be a product of some progress in a way? I'm trying to, as we run out of time here, I'm trying to find some positive threads to pull on, friends.
2: No, I think one of the positive aspects is that we're pushing each other to recognize a broader landscape of what the United States of America is about. And But also, I work for Senator Voinovich, who passed away a few years ago in Ohio. He was the mayor of Cleveland, and he was our senator and also our governor, a moderate Republican. And I really admired how he would spend a lot of time making phone calls. We're not making phone calls anymore. Like, I know we probably remember this. I still have my best friend's phone numbers memorized from, like, you know, high school and junior high. But I just remember him. I have
0: no idea what your phone number is. I just <laughs> right, you know, say, call I, Sarah.
2: <laughs> right. But I think we're not taking the time to step back and listen. I think the other piece, you know, one of the things that I learned early on just working in political campaigns is that you have to listen to people. And I remember when we were trying to decide whether or not to go to war with Iraq and Senator DeWine and Voinovich were both in the same office and people were calling in to try to sway the senators and stuff. And it was really intense just in the office and and them talking about it, but them having constituent meetings. And, you know, a lot of members of Congress don't even meet with their constituents anymore. Mm -hmm. And then you think about folks on the front lines of the bureaucracy and they are listening to folks and trying to make that difference. And I think, I mean, it sounds so simple, but... I would love if we just picked up the phone and actually said, hey, like, how are you? What can I do to help you?
0: What do you think of that prospect, Bryce? It's exactly, I have
1: exactly the same thought, shaded in different terms, right? Mm -hmm. We need to reduce the salience of the identities that divide us and increase the salience of the identities that unite us, right? Our neighborhood, our community, our state, whatever it might be, but we need to start working on finding the things that unite us so that we can move between these identities. Look, you know, we've gotten hardened. We've gotten kind of the trench warfare of polarization leads us to harden ourselves into these us versus them identities. Whereas I think what was happening in the glory days that, you know, Senator Bacchus or Senator Mansfield were, were living through is people were jumping around in their identities. True. You know, I could move around my identities. And, you know, so we need to figure out how we can break that cycle of, I just, we're all in this, they're them, we're us, and we're just at war. And, you know, there are some things that I would like to see changed about our political system that might facilitate that, like a much larger House of Representatives so that you don't have to, like, go to an air war to try and win. It can be true local retail politics without gerrymandering, you know, without strict control from the the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader over what gets even voted on. Right. Let the members of Congress who are in different factions start Meeting up with each other and showed that there, are, you know, these people on the other side aren't just the enemy. They actually agree with each other on a bunch of stuff.
2: But democracy is supposed to be hard, right? Like yeah. it's supposed to be really hard. It's supposed to be messy, and I mean, we have to find agreement over disagreement.
0: So, friends, as we close, I'd love to kind of, th- you know, Bryce, you suggested some solutions as far as you know conceptual solutions, things that would trigger identities that, that bring us together. What kind of solutions come to mind to? to help us navigate these waters more
2: productively? How do we just kind of tone it down and try to get stuff done and, and act in better faith? We are trained to muddle through, right? Like make small changes. You know, I even think about safe drinking water, right? So like, we're actually gonna have pipes that don't have lead on them with a new infrastructure bill, right? So like, that's an easy win. Like we want to have safe drinking water. So just finding those spaces where we can agree over disagreement But in the United States, like we make small incremental changes and those lead to big, broad changes. And so I think that we often forget that policymaking is supposed to be really hard. But again, I'm going to go back to have a conversation like might be hard to have a conversation over conflict. We're conflict avoidance. But having a conversation and just being like, hey, this is what I thought you heard. Heard you say. Is this what you intended to say? And and I think that those conversations are happening in Congress. They definitely happen within the halls of the bureaucracy. But, but then when we get outside and we want to have that soundbite, how do we sift through that? And that's up to us to help our students and our family members to, to navigate that. And I think let's go back to having conversations.
0: I like that. Bryce, what do you
1: think? 20 years ago, a book called Bowling Alone by a guy named Robert Putnam came mm-hmm. out. And it basically foreshadowed all of this right? It basically drove my research agenda as a graduate student. Uh, You know, when I talk about the social stuff, it was fundamentally because that book came out and it scared me. 20 years later, it was very prescient, right? So we have to, you know, I mean, he basically talks about the decline of civil organizations within society, right? Used to be, you didn't have any, you know, these distractions. So what did you do? You hung out with your neighbors, you were in a bowling league, you were part of the Rotary Club and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know about you, but I do none of those things. I'm the, technically the person who should have more resources to figure out how to make time for this kind of stuff, but I don't. And so we have to figure out how do we make time for each other so that we can have conversations. And how do we, as we do that, because right now we don't have the muscles for it. And, but you know, we have started avoiding each other because of politics, right? We see it in data, right? Oh yeah.
0: Geographic Where, sorting, all of us. Well, no,
1: I mean, just look at American time you survey. Oh, People yeah. spend less time with friends. They spend less time with non-household family. And it's dropped precipitously in 2016. And the pandemic. And then we had a pandemic. Right. And so, you know, we've got to rebuild our social muscles to get back out into, you know, how do we just integrate, interact with people? Maybe we need some, you know, actual trainings and things that as we go through school and just in life about, oh, you know, here's how to have a conversation about a difficult topic that you maybe disagree with. some well, Maybe we need to. I actually think we should ask more of people in terms of public service. Right. You know, just like we, you know, I just got called to jury duty. I should be called to jury duty for the health and labor committee or whatever it is. Right. They're going to debate bills. Let me hear not just from the people who are motivated to show up. Let's just draw a random selection of people, make them sit through some education and then ask them what they think. But then, you know, what does that do? That makes me a learn about an issue, B, sit in a room with a random selection of my fellow citizens and just learn what it is that they think about. We know that from, you know, deliberative polling evidence that that changes how people think about other people. And if we're not going to do it on our own, then one of the things that we can do from a policy level is put a little finger on the scale, start trying to nudge some people to interact with each other and realize that they actually have stuff in common.
0: Well, I think that's sort of great uh An optimistic message to maybe end on as we kind of approach the holidays here. I would encourage all of you to put the phone down, turn the radio off, go knock on a neighbor's door, go do something with somebody. Talk about something that you don't often talk about. Those difficult things that we, uh, there's so many easy ways to avoid. Go out and do them because I think that's probably the only way forward. Sarah, Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. I I know we opened up a lot of doors. I don't know if we closed any, but... um, conversations the way forward. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hanson. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, blackfoot communications and the university of montana college of business with additional support from consolidated electrical distributors drum coffee and montana public radio aj williams is our producer bto jeff amet and john wicks made our music editing by nick mott and jeff meese is our master of all things sound thanks a lot and see you next time